Uh, my name is Patrick. I'm one of the overseers here, and so it's good to see some new faces as well as some old faces that I haven't seen in a little bit, and so it's always good to see your presence. And, uh, and I'm looking forward to getting into the Word together. Uh, Numbers chapter 20. And I will read this for us, and then we will pray. Okay. Numbers chapter 20, we're going to read verse 2 through 13. Verse 2 says, <clears throat> And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before Yahweh. Why have you brought the assembly of Yahweh into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines and pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went, in, went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent and fell on their faces. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to them, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation for you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before, the, before Yahweh as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you should not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel, Israel quarreled with Yahweh, and through them he showed himself holy. Let's pray. If you want to just take a moment to just ask the Lord to teach you and speak to your own heart, as your act of worship, to ready your heart. Father, as always, we are desperately in need of you, and we need to hear your word, but there is so many things that may block that. There are so many distractions. There are so many cares of the world and burdens and desires and, and other things on our mind, but I pray right now we would receive your word with meekness, with teachability, with humility, that we would be a people that would tremble before your word. That we would humble ourselves before you. And so as I preach, I pray that I would preach by the power of the Spirit. And as our congregation listens, I pray that they would listen by the power of the Spirit, humbly acknowledging their need for you and trusting in you. God, this is not something where we can do. We need the Holy Spirit to come and overpower our desires our sinful tendencies, and to give us newness of life. And so we pray now as a congregation, as a group, as a church, that we would hear the words of the living God today, and we would not just learn, but we would experience you, your goodness, your, how gracious you are, your slow to anger, steadfast in love. And then that would lead to our obedience. And so show us today that you are holy and that you are a loving God. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Moses is known, if you aren't familiar with the Bible, he's known as a very self-controlled leader. And he's the leader of the people of God, the Israelites. And if you take a look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he is provoked repeatedly. He doesn't lose his temper with Pharaoh in Exodus 11. When the Israelites are disobeying God in Exodus 16, he doesn't lose his temper. He's angry, but his anger there is justified. In Leviticus 10, he keeps his cool with a... Uh, with Aaron's sons when they are disobedient. He still keeps his temper. He stays self-controlled during Korah's rebellion, and after having been self-controlled for so long, he loses it in Numbers 20. I mean, he has faced the people's unbelief, their hardness of heart, their grumbling, their complaining, their disillusionment, and he and Aaron gather the congregation before the rock, and Moses says, hear now, you rebels. And you can almost hear the anger in his voice. And instead of speaking to the rock, he speaks to the congregation, and then in his anger, he strikes the rock not once, but twice. I understand Moses. Part of me is... A little bit like, you know, like he must have been tired. He's been provoked. It's been a long season. And yet what happens in this story? He loses the right to enter into the promised land. And God says, I am holy. And because I'm holy, this is so serious that you can't get into the promised land. And Moses is a great example of a leader who thinks his anger is under control but slowly finds out it is not. It's always a struggle for me now that I don't preach weekly. It's always a struggle like, what do I preach on? What do I preach on? I have like three months and I spend two and a half months trying to figure out what I'm going to preach on, right? But this one was easy for me because I was preaching on, or I always sort of lean towards preaching on sort of what am I struggling with. And anger is and has always been one of the biggest struggles of my life. I'm pretty good at hiding it. If you don't know me too well, you may not think I'm an angry person, but it comes out. I remember the first time, and I got her permission for this, I remember the first time I got angry at my wife when we were dating. (laughs) We were dating, and she lived in North Hollywood at the time, and so I went and I picked her up, and we were going to go to Thirsty Promenade for like one of our first dates. It was probably like a month or two in. And, you know, you go from Hollywood to Santa Monica, and it's not a far drive, but you're just sitting in basically the worst traffic possible, right? Because we're going at like 4 or 5 p.m., we're trying to go local, and I'm sitting there, and we're trying to decide what to eat when we get there. And she's naming off stuff, you know, on Yelp, like, should we get this? Should we get this? Should we get this? And inside, I remember, I can almost feel, I was fuming. Just pick something, right? Why is it so hard? Why are you just saying stuff? We're not making any progress. And I remember I was so frustrated, and basically that ruined our date. And then I was like, oh, man, that was sort of the first time anger sort of exploded out. And that might be a silly example, but that was the beginning of a season where I started to realize this is a pattern in my life, especially as you get closer to someone. 2013, 2014 was probably the year where I felt most exposed in my anger. Have you ever, um, you've heard the term like uh, bridezilla? 
My wife was not bridezilla. She was an angel during our wedding planning season. I was groomzilla. Right? I, I've never heard that term, but I'm like, I, I'm groomzilla. It was like, it was so bad. I was so angry. I was so foolish during that season. Wedding planning was so hard for me, partly because I'm a huge control freak. Like, my wife is, like, so relaxed, and I have a strong opinion on everything. And I knew this was an issue, and it kept coming back, and, you know, it showed up in more serious ways. And so that was the first year that I actually decided I need to go to counseling. Specifically, it was for my anger. And it's one of those honest struggles where we go through, like, the book of 1 Timothy 3, or... 1 Timothy in chapter 3, you look at Titus chapter 1, and sort of, you know, over the years of pastoral ministry, I've had multiple times where I'm just like, should I step down? That's an honest question that I've asked, because it says in those chapters that a leader must be able to manage their temper. They must not be short-tempered. And I think I've made progress in this area, but maybe part of it is just because my circumstances have not brought it out in me. Because nowadays, one of the reasons why I was like, I need to preach on this, months ago, I, it's not so much my wife, but now I have a four-year-old who sometimes I'm like, are you already a teenager? I just, she's a four-year-old girl, but she's right there. She has no idea I'm talking about her. But I just like, here now, you rebel, right? You troublemaker. I just want five minutes of my own time. Can you please just give me that space? But when you look at someone and you have raised their voice at them and someone who's so vulnerable, who's so weak, and you raise your voice to them and you see the look on their face, you start to realize this is something you have to deal with. It's a sin that has pervaded or is very present in my family in the previous generations. It's a generational sin, and I would say that in many ways it has been passed on to me, and it's a sin that I don't want to pass on to my children. And so here's a question I'm asking myself as I prepare prepare for this message on anger, which is really a message to myself. I see all these different philosophies on how to deal with anger, anger management classes, but what can Christ do that an anger management class cannot. You know, when you look at a lot of the advice out there on how to deal with anger, there's wisdom in it, in secular anger management, and that's part of God's common grace. You know, take regular exercise, get good sleep, think ahead about how to have certain difficult conversations, learn how to use humor to diffuse a crisis. I think that's a good one. Avoid sarcasm, count to 10, breathe slowly, use certain breathing exercise, recognize your triggers and avoid them, unlearn ineffective coping mechanisms and learn better ones. Do something creative like dancing or writing in a journal, find a friend to talk about. Instead of trying to say, I, instead of getting angry, say, I feel upset when, and don't hold a grudge. I was sitting there, just my kids were watching TV and I got, I got a tip from um, Daniel Tiger. Do you guys know Daniel Tiger? He's ba- it's a cartoon that's basically the, uh, a cartoon version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. That's what it's based upon, right? And there's a song Daniel Tiger sings in this episode on how to manage anger. And uh, when you want to roar, take a deep breath and count to four. 
one, two, three, four. And it's the cutest thing in the world because there was one day where Tabby was in backseat crying. She's like, crying, I want this. When you want to roar, take a deep breath, count to four. And, and then it helped. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is so adorable. And it actually helped her in that time. She hasn't done it since, but every once in a while when she sees like me or my wife or Micah getting angry, she starts singing that song <laughs> to us. You know, anger management can be helpful, okay? Um, there's techniques that can be helpful, but part of the problem is that the underlying assumption and all that is that we can fix ourselves. We just need to take the right strategy. We just need to do the right thing, try the right technique, and then you can reinvent yourself into a non-angry 2.0 version of yourself. I recently read from a Christian therapist, and I was a little sad when I read this, that it, this person was sharing that, you know, you need to have healthy anger towards someone that has wronged you. And their definition of healthy anger is that you should yell, you should slander, you should curse, and even emotionally hurt the offending party, and that offending party just needs to take it and deal with it. That's part of the healing process for the that's what the offending party has done. But that's not the way of Christ, and that's not in Scripture. In an article um, when someone was responding to some advice that someone had given through psychology today, this person said, Dear counselor, you told the mother of a three-year-old to let him get his anger out of his system. Well, my brother back then would kick furniture when he was mad. He's 32 years old now, and he's still kicking the furniture, at least what's left of it. But now he's kicking his wife, his kids, and whatever else gets in the way. Last week, he kicked a television out of a second-story window. And Proverbs 29:11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Here's the outline for today's sermon. Okay? Five points. First, number one, do I have an anger problem? Number two, why does it matter? Number three, what causes it? Number four, how do we respond when it's justified? And number five, how do we respond when it's unrighteous? So do I have an anger problem? Why does it matter? What causes it? How do we respond when it's justified? And how do we respond when it's unrighteous? And it's one of those things that we want to not look to secular management, but what we need is the Spirit of God to come and overtake our hearts. And so that's where we look. Number one, do I have an anger problem? Now, I might be talking to people that don't have an anger problem. Okay? Some of you may not have a major issue with anger. Okay? But it still comes out at times. At times, you may still leak. And I got my permission from my wife on this one for sure. But uh, one time, uh, you know, my wife is amazingly patient. If you don't know her, she's just so kind. She's so patient, so self-controlled. I'm the total feeler of our relationship. And she's always, like, so logical. I'm like, stop being so logical, right? You know, like, just, you know, like, wow, you're so, you're so, like, slow to anger. But there was this one time where I got a call from Grace. And she wasn't mad at me. But the first thing she did is, like, I'm pissed. I was like, that is so awesome. What are you pissed about? 
I didn't say that, but I was, in my mind, I was like, what, what are you pissed about, right? And I was laughing, because I've never heard those words come out of her mouth. I'm pissed. And so every once in a while, I go up to her, I'm like, I'm pissed, right? And I just make fun of her, because she's never done that before. This was before we had kids. It was something to do with the hospital, and so I understood. But I just thought that was the most hilarious thing, because even for her, it comes out at times. And for many of us, it might be... Ex- extreme, but for some of us, it might be more subtle or hidden. The Bible shows like all types of forms of anger. Okay? It's not just an obvious outburst like Moses. You know, you have explosive examples like King Saul. You have someone who's passive aggressive. He pouts and he sulks like Jonah. You have Balaam throwing this ridiculous tantrum. You have this cold, like deep resentment from King Amnon. You have this interesting example from King Ahab where it says, uh, when he can't get what he wants, he's angry and he's frustrated. And it says, therefore, in 1 Kings 21.4, he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Those are like classic symptoms of depression. His anger becomes a sullen, depressed, moody anger. Frustration, anger, depression oftentimes are connected. That's anger that's turned within. I have a list here, and if we could put them up. Um, it's hard to see, but you know, there's different ways anger shows up. Resentment, bitterness, irritation, grumbling, sarcasm, indifference, having a critical spirit, a competitive spirit, abuse, envy, hatred, quarreling, sulking, did I put sulking, (laughs) Um, giving like the silent treatment, depression. And some of us, like we don't explode. That's what I'm guessing is the case for most of us. We don't yell, you don't punch the wall. But like, you know, in my family, my, my mom became like a master of plastering walls, right? And fixing broken doors, right? But for many of us, I bet your anger is hidden. It's passive aggressive, you don't show it. You're constantly annoyed, you're fuming, you're irritated, you're rolling your eyes, you're fine. Or you just sit there as this dead presence. You put people down. You get cynical, critical. You become like this ultimate party pooper, and you just put up a fake smile. You control your voice, but oftentimes that type of anger can be just as scary. Or maybe you're not even aware that you have anger, and so that's why you don't do anything to remove it. Maybe you give people the silent treatment. And that doesn't look like anger, but look deeper. We treat people as if they don't exist. You might as well be invisible. You're dead to me right now. And if you want to come alive again, you need to submit to my will. Or maybe the strongest form of anger is just when you're indifferent. You're just so above that person. You're, you're, so, you're not even worth my anger. In Eastern cultures, the approach oftentimes is not to show it, to hide it, to be passive, but it brews, and oftentimes you may be fine for years and years, and then it explodes because you never express it. And in my experience, at least, Asians in particular are masters of harboring grudges. In the Western cultures, oftentimes the approach is much more often, you know, what I showed you in the Psychology Today article, you, you should express it, don't hold it in, just get it out of your system. But when you're getting it out of your system, what you're actually doing is getting it deeper into your system, right? Either way, for us, it's probably more subtle. It's not punching holes and putting holes in the um, punching walls and putting holes in the wall. But there, uh, there's a bunch of other ways that we express our anger that maybe are more socially acceptable, but are still just as damaging. Do I have an anger problem? 
The short answer that, to that is yes. And if you deny that, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Why does it matter? Second point. Uh, I don't think I need to go into this so much, but it's just, it's so powerful, it's so dangerous, and the consequences of anger are so huge that we just need to handle with extra care. The word anger has its roots in Greek mythology. It's just imagine the Greek god Zeus throwing lightning bolts at those who oppose his sovereign will. You're breathing fire. It's a dynamite of the soul. It disintegrates. It's explosive. It's destructive. Oftentimes we see an argument became heated or this person's like burning with anger. And it might be controlled like a fire in an incinerator, but oftentimes it just it explodes out of control into a blaze. One author, Christopher Ashe, who I'm taking a lot of this material from um, in his book, uh, The Heart of Anger, he calls anger the drawn sword of human relationships. Before the sword strikes, you first draw it from its sheath. It's that first feeling of irritation when the hand begins to move. As anger then progresses, you take the sword out, and at its peak, you begin to wave it in the air, ready to strike. It might just start with being irritated in your heart, but eventually, it's a feeling that leads to a deed or a word. And anger is dangerous, just like a sword is dangerous. Jesus himself tells us that anger has within it the seeds of murder in Matthew chapter 5. You will harm. Why does it matter so much? It's obvious, but let me just say it anyways. Your anger will harm your family, your church, yourself. It's unfortunate as I hear all these stories of domestic abuse taking place in the home, especially of Christians, maybe even pastors, and whether it's emotional abuse or some kind of verbal abuse or physical abuse, behind that abuse there's always an angry abuser. And thankfully, you know, I'm sure there are many pastors, and I may struggle with anger without ever engaging in abuse, but if I don't do something about that, I'm on the way. I'm on the way. And if I'm on that path, it's by the grace of God that I haven't been there. Anger destroys the church. We can go more into that later. But James 4 says, you know, when you're frustrated, you can't get what you want. You murder and your passions take over. And we start to throw around words like weapons. Anger destroys the body, you know, from the Greek word ankon, which is the word, one of the words for anger, which literally means strangling. Have you ever gotten so angry that you just are huffing and puffing and you just cannot breathe normally? You lost control of your, of your body and your breathing is uneven. Overall, we, we know, anger just makes us foolish, right? It destroys our ability to make wise decisions. Like, do you, when you get angry, do you feel like a fool? It's because you are a fool. You're being stupid in that moment. Proverbs 14.29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. In another version, it just says, He who has a hasty temper is stupid. It's like trying to reason with someone who's high on drugs or is drunk. You can't do it. 
It's so powerful. Anger is so powerful. It matters so much because it can fill your mind. It fills your thoughts. It fills your imagination. It fills every part of your body, your emotional life, your thought life, and even your physical body. Even your physical body. And it creates this like jaded view of reality where you only see things through the lens of your anger and you can't listen to other people's points of views. You're self-deceived, and that's exactly what Satan the deceiver wants. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. Let's make sure we see this from a spiritual, heavenly point of view. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your, on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I was reading through Ephesians. I was reading through this context, and it's interesting that right after telling believers to be careful not to sin in their anger, Paul warns about demonic danger that lurks, specifically with anger. And he separates it as an opportunity that you have given to Satan. What is this idea of an opportunity, you know? Because when you have unresolved or untreated anger, an unforgiving heart, there's a dark and demonic dimension to that where Satan will destroy you with that in a way that's maybe more serious than other types of struggles. It gives a devil, the devil a foothold in your church and in your relationships. You know, you just imagine the movies where you see a fortress that is well defended against invasion. Maybe it's on a coastline or maybe it's just on a hill. And in order to get into the fortress, you need some kind of foothold. You need like a bridge or a ladder to get into the fortress. That's what you're doing when you have unresolved anger. The enemy needs to create some kind of ground, some kind of place, a topon, a place where they can cross into your fortress. They need a foothold, and once they have that, you're in great danger. It matters a lot. What causes my anger? Okay, let's move on, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one, okay? Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? When you're angry, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? That's a good question to ask. Let's just talk about the obvious one. There's external pressures, okay? Intuitively, that's probably our first response. I'm angry because of this going on, or what he or she or they did to me. And if we're sort of using a metaphor of a tree, this is like a strong tree, but the heat is bearing down. It's external. It's on the outside. And I don't need to go into this too much, but there's, there's infinite amount of reasons why you may feel angry because of what's going on around you. You lose your job, a loss of relationship, loss of finances, death of a loved one, disaster, illness, addiction, rebellious children, miscommunication, feeling misrepresented, overworked, stressed, overly criticized, or unfairly criticized, and on and on and on. I don't need to go on with that. There's heat coming from the outside. That's an external pressure. Another type of external pressure is uh, what I'll call like this contagious anger. Contagious anger. And anger is not just a me thing or a you thing. That's how we think about it in this individualistic society. But it can be caught like an infectious disease. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25 says, Make no friends when a man, with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. 
And this, I understand this. When we sit with people who are angry and they tell us their troubles, our instinct is to join them in being angry at the unfairness of it all. And from them, we learn, we pick up habits and adopt their angry attitudes and anger spreads from person to person. I'm angry and I want you to be angry with me in my anger. And if you're not angry with me in my anger, sympathizing with my anger, then I'm going to be angry at you for not feeling the angry the anger that I feel you should feel for my anger, right? I see this in my marriage all the time. Again, I'm the feeling, I'm like, God, this person like, is driving me crazy, right? Now, I want her to say, yeah, he's ridiculous. And if she doesn't, if she's just like, you know, let's think about this, you know, and then if she reflects to me what she should reflect to me, which is Christ, and if she doesn't respond in my anger, I'm angry with her, right? Clearest example of this I found in the Bible is Acts 19, the riot of Ephesus. There's this angry riot, and in, verse, uh, in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, it says that assembly was in confusion. Well, actually, I'll read it. I can't see it. I think we changed the version. Now, some cried out, and some, oh, <laughs> I can't see it. Uh, for this assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had even come together. Right? It's sort of like this social media anger, right? It's just, I, I'm, we're, we're all here, but I don't know why I'm angry, but we're here, but I'm, I just know I'm angry. There are external pressures, and those are legitimate, and you should diagnose what are those things that sort of bring out anger in me. But the real key, and you know me now if you've heard me say this enough, the real key is in my own heart and in your own heart. We can blame external things. I'm angry because of my mom. I'm angry because of my boss. And immediately we point outside, but that's not the root of the problem. Going back to the tree metaphor, if you have heat coming in, what really matters is the strength and the health of the root. The problem is not that there's heat outside. The problem is that we have a bad root inside. James chapter 1 says, let no one, when, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You are enticed and lured by your own desires, and that desire gives birth to sin, and sin to death. And in a sense, I guess, in a very loose sense, whenever you put blame outside of yourself, you're blaming God because he's the one that put that person or situation in your life. James chapter uh, four, verse four says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Why are you angry? Why are you fighting? Because of the desires within you, he says. We want to say it's because of the bad behavior of that person or the way that I've been treated or the way that the world treats me. And if only they weren't so bad, then I wouldn't fight. And the solution, therefore, is not in here. It's out there. That does not mean, and what I'm not saying is that that doesn't mean that other people aren't guilty. They may have done something wrong and even wicked, and we absolutely recognize that, but it is to say that my response to anger arises from desires of my heart. They are not ultimately caused by the behavior of others. 
James says you are part of the problem too. Turn off your inner lawyer that's fighting against this right now. Be honest. Look inward. Don't blame other people. Don't blame God. Don't blame circumstances. The root problem lies in your own heart. And so when anger bubbles up, what's causing it? Okay, Diagnose it. What's, what's the heat? What's causing it outside, outside of me? That's fair. That's legitimate. But more importantly, what does it reveal about your heart? Anger arises when something I treasure or value is threatened or taken away from me. If I feel I might lose it in the future, if I have that fear of losing it in the future, or I've actually lost it, I get angry. And the second you analyze your anger, it's like, it's so hard to do this when you're actually angry, but if you actually have that self-control to be able to analyze your anger in that moment, you'll start to feel silly because you know that in most cases, in most cases, there's other cases that are more legitimate, oftentimes, and I'm just going to point out too, there's a lot more, it's either your enormous pride or it's your enormous need for control. There's more than that, but I'm going to highlight those two, okay? I, I love to be in control. I want to be in control of my family, my marriage, my home, my church, and I'm angry when others don't allow me to be in control, and when that happens, I want to eliminate the threat. I want to build my own kingdom, just like, you know, in the kings, when you see King Saul or you see uh, King Herod, when there's a threat to their control, to their reign, to their rule, what do they want to do? They want to eliminate that threat. I want to accomplish my plans. I want to get somewhere quickly. I want to run my department. I want to shape my marriage the way I want to be. I want to be in control of my kids. They should submit to me in every way that I want. I am in, I am in charge. And when you get in my way, I'm angry. And when things spin out of control, out of my grasp, I'm like, can you just sit and eat, right? Just for like 10 minutes, just sit and eat. Now, I can't even control that. I get frustrated. Another one is just our wounded pride. I treasure my reputation, my name. It matters to me a lot what people think of me. I want respect and admiration. And I'm so frustrated that the world does not share the high opinion that I have of myself. You know, you, once you have kids, it's just like, I'm so frustrated. It's like, there's something bad about my kids rebelling against me, but if you rebel against me in public, at church, you, you make me look bad at church or at Target, right? This past week at Target, we we're just like, get him out of there. We're going to take him to the car. He is just being a, a rebel, right? Man, you just wait till we get home, right? You just wait till we get home. That's like the anger that arises in my heart. Like, how, how dare you do something to me that exposes me as an incompetent parent? What angers you the most? Then ask yourself, what are you defending? What is being threatened? And then you have the answer to the thing your heart loves the most. It's your disordered love. Respect, control, a desire for possessions, you know, just like, you know, I need to have this pleasure that comes from an Amazon package that comes exactly on time, right? Like, 
I, I must have my shiny new laptop, my new toy, and if you don't give it to me and you tell me that it's been delayed, I'm so annoyed. Is that really any different? Sorry. Is that really any different from the kid that just throws a tantrum at the supermarket mall because they can't get the shiny toy that they want, right? Power, pleasure, security, sexual frustration. And I'm all about trying to get to the root of the problem, to the heart of things, okay? And I was reading this book by Christopher Ashe, and I thought he made an interesting point where he says that he makes his claim that the heart of all anger beneath the surface, the sin beneath the sin, is our desire to be God of our lives. It almost sounds a little bit like, wait, are you saying I think I'm some divine being? It sounds a little bit ridiculous at first, but we all have this innate desire to want to be God. Isn't that how Adam and Eve were first tempted? God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will have the possibility of power, possibility of total control, the right to possess, the feeling of being all important and praise, all things that belong to God alone. And it's the sin beneath the sin underlying all things. The first and most fundamental failing of the human heart is this desire to be God over our lives. I am God, I am in charge, and in my will be done. This world, you, this world should bend to my will. And I'm angry that it's not going my way. If anyone, I should be able to rise above the ordinary frustrations of life. If anyone, it should be me. Traffic jams shouldn't interrupt my journey. Canceled flights shouldn't delay me. Bathrooms shouldn't flood. Kids should obey my absolute authority. Such things should happen to others, but not me. I was late this morning. I was late. And, and you know, we got up late, and we, we, it was too late to feed the kids. We're like, we're going to stop by McDonald's. We have to feed the kids. And, man, if I wasn't preaching on anger, I would have gone angry. I was 20 minutes in the drive-thru. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm missing the toddler service. I have the sermon illustrations. I have the audio equipment. I'm, I'm messaging Sophia, like, I'm so sorry I'm late. And, and I could be like, you know, I have this righteous desire to go and, you know, I got to make sure I'm prepared for worship. But really, I was like, man, I just feel exposed for my irresponsible planning. Right? Uh, I just look bad. And seriously, in my mind, I'm like, I'm preaching on anger today. I'm preaching on anger today. <laughs> I was like, why is it taking so long? It always just seems like that one day when you're late. Why is everyone getting in the way of my will? And when things spin out of control, man... Such things should happen to others, not to me. When my almighty will gets crossed, I throw lightning bolts, I roll my eyes, I scream and punch. I'm irritated that the world is not conforming to everything that I think it should be. What is a control freak other than someone who will only be satisfied with God-like control? Any control freaks here? Yes. Thank you. We all try to create our kingdoms and expect to rule over them, and when we get angry and when our sovereignty is opposed, we get frustrated. In our, I'm just, in our pretending to be God mode, we think, I should be in control. I know everything. Or we assume we know everything. Why did that person respond to my email? 
Jeez, little slacker. How, how dare that friend drop out of that weekend commitment? Why isn't this person meeting my expectations? What's going on? Oh, they're just being lazy. Do you have absolute knowledge? Do you see everything? We always live in the absence of absolute knowledge. There are always things we do not know because we are not God, but we pretend to be. Let me speak to parents for a second. As parents who are in pretend-to-be-God mode, we assume this God-like control and authority over our kids' lives. We think it's a quality of our parenting that is going to determine their future. Their lives are in my hands. You're not God. I could change their hearts. You're not God. We try to control them. We try to fix their lives, and then we become what is, we know, tiger moms, or in my case, tiger dad, okay? a lawnmower parent, a helicopter. What is all of that except saying, I will have sovereign control over my kids' lives? Their lives are in, their, in God's hands. My times are in God's hands. My kids' lives are in God's hands. And instead of representing God as ambassadors, we become owners and we replace God. This is a side point, but I guess how many of our problems in life would get better if we acknowledge the limitation that you cannot change people's hearts? You can't change people's hearts. You can't yell at them. You can't just scream at them and say, you know, do this and think that'll change their hearts. In our pretending to God mode, you know, like pretending to be God mode, like I hate feeling weak, I hate feeling exposed, I hate feeling limited, I think I could change hearts, I want to believe in my own power, my own capacity, I want to feel strong and capable, and it frustrates me that all of you are not conforming to me, and behind anger is the sin that has led me to take the place of God. And I hate anything that is a threat to my divine status. Have you ever had a time where it's like, you know, where I go and I take my kids, I have to go, I take my kids to the doctor's office, I get there and they're like, oh, we called you, we left messages and stuff saying that we changed the appointment time. And I just roar, I want to roar and count to four at that moment, right? Um, and I'm just, what are you talking about? You know how hard it was for me? And in my mind, in the back of my mind, I was like, I remember I got that message. But I'm like, no, I didn't get that. Who leaves messages in today's day and age? You should have texted me, right? I'm coming with all these things. Like, how dare you show me that I am not as divine as I think I am? Take some time to diagnose. Like, what's going on in your heart? What are you protecting? What are you defending? Analyze that. What do you love too much? In what ways are, are you getting to this pretend-to-be-God mode? Now, I have to move on, but how do we respond when it's justified? Okay? Yahweh said, do you do well to be angry, or are you right to be angry, Jonah 4.4? 4. When you sort of diagnose, okay, this is what's being threatened, this is what's being taken away from me, and the question then is, are you right to treasure that? Are you right to defend that? Like, I love the honor of God, I love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm defending a certain thing that relates to his honor. Are you right to treasure that? Yes. 
And there's a few examples, okay? Let's talk about when it is justified. You know, in the Bible, there's a couple examples. There's only a few examples in Scripture of justified human anger. Very few. You see it in the Psalms. You see it with Moses and the golden calf. You see it with John the Baptist with religious hypocrites. I have to imagine that's like an angry scene, right? You, I can't imagine him saying, like, you brood of vipers, right? That you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, right? You see it in Paul in, um, in Acts 17. And, of course, most clearly, you see it in God. Exodus 34, 6, how does Yahweh introduce himself? He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how God introduces himself. He's a God who is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And I am so thankful those two are together. Because contrary to contemporary opinion, you can't have an angry God if you're going to have a loving God because in his love, you know, he should never be angry. But what if anger in its origin, in its uncorrupted version, is defending against a threat, something you love? You're defending against intimacy. You're defending the people you love. God is angry at things that threaten what he values or treasures. And the anger of God is necessary if we are to ever believe that there's going to be justice and evil that will be destroyed. Anger in the Bible on God's end is always kindled in response to evil and evil alone. It's never anything outside of that. Blatant evil should make us intolerant or angry. And Jesus, I don't have time to get into this, but if you can ever just meditate on the anger and emotional life of Christ, especially look at John 11, where it's just he shows this righteous anger. He sees death. He sees what Satan has caused. He's mad at anger. It says he bellows. Uh, he, he is uh, deeply moved at how much evil and brokenness and death and suffering and loss of life. Human anger, as opposed to God, is usually depicted as a loss of self-control that results in a certain type of word or evil behavior. God is always angry at the right thing in the right way. He is slow to anger. He's not no anger. He's not blow-up anger. He is slow to anger. And his patience is like a dam. His wrath is coming one day, but his patience is like a dam. It's holding the water. It's holding the wrath back. He's always slow to anger. And even in the New Te Old Testament, you see him giving them time and their, and their evil is building up and he's patient. But one day it will be released. And Ephesians makes it clear. I think NIV gets the sense right when it says, like, in your anger, do not sin. Okay? Meaning it is possible to get angry and not sin. But here's what I want to say to that. When you feel justified, be very suspicious of your ability to justify your anger. Very suspicious, deeply suspicious when you wake up and you have a thousand arguments in your mind and you're in defense mode, your inner lawyer comes up and you have come up with a billion reasons why you are justified. Be suspicious of that. It's possible, but I would say be suspicious or cynical of yourself in that manner. Because like anything else, you know, what begins as a justifiable anger, in your anger, can equal, very quickly turn into sin. 
you have a righteous anger to injustice. That can lead to self-righteousness, which is sin. That leads to personal resentment towards certain people, which is sin. That leads to an unforgiving spirit, which then you lash out at others. Be angry and do not sin. When it's unrighteous, and I'm going to land the plane now. What about when your anger is unrighteous? And let's just be honest, that's probably our bigger problem, right? You've done some diagnosis. You know what causes it outside. You examine what's caused it inside of you. Now, you know, I need to address this. You need to address this. Ephesians makes it clear. Before the sun goes down, address it. That's very practical. Don't drive off. Don't do all these other things. Make it a matter of priority that I will address this anger, not just let it fester and grow and do all these other types of things. You need to deal with this right now. So practical. He even gives a time frame. I think he's just saying deal with it quickly. Prioritize it. And this is one of those moments where I feel the great inadequacy of preaching where... <laughs> I could uh, come up with a sermon, but I don't want you thinking, I've heard this sermon, now I can walk away, and I'm good with anger now. There has to be hard work that takes place. You want to know where this sermon matters? When you are on your knees in your closet, you're praying, or you're side of your bed, or you're walking, and I've given you a framework, but now you have to go and pray it out and let the Lord work in your heart. I hope you walk away saying, you know, there's an act of an aspect of my character I, de I need to desperately work on and I need to pray through. So all the things I'm going to share with you now can be done in the act of prayer. Four applications, all from the book of James. Okay? All from the book of James. Number one, mourn your anger. You got to admit that you're angry. And to admit you're angry is an act of vulnerability. You have to humble yourself and admit your weakness. Don't blame God. Look inside yourself. If you deny your anger, nothing will change, and it probably shows you're controlled by it. Nowadays, what I just said is not very popular. It's all about avoiding anger. It's about avoiding guilt and shame. But when I see the look on my daughter's face when I explode in anger on her, I should feel ashamed. I should feel bad about that. In James chapter 4, in the context of those who are angry and quarreling in the church, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist, resist the devil. Here's how you resist the devil. Instead of giving him a foothold, here's how you resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Stop short-circuiting the repentance process and actually mourn over your sin. Mourn over your anger, how damaging it is. Whoa. We okay? <laughs> oh, man. I just lost my train of thought, okay? I need to get back into wrath mode a little bit, okay? <laughs> but repentance, should we just leave it? Okay. 
Repentance is this heartfelt sorrow. Heartfelt sorrow. How often do you have heartfelt sorrow over your anger? I can't talk more about this, but I think we need to take more time to repent and actually face up to your sin. Face up to your sin. Don't short-circuit it. Just like, I'm fine. I'm forgiven. No. Mourn over your sin. Don't laugh about it. Turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself. Face up to your sin. Secondly, pray for wisdom. And I'm getting this from James chapter 1, verse 5, that says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, this verse may seem random, but when we pray for wisdom, oftentimes we think we're praying for guidance. I need some kind of information. I don't know what to do. Should I move here? Should I do this? Should I date that person? I lack wisdom, and so God, would you please give me guidance or information? But in James chapter 3, James tells us that's not what he's asking about. That's not what he's talking about. James says, wisdom is not a lack of information. It's a type of character. And for those who are angry, it says in James chapter 3, those who are bitter, jealous, they have this unearthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. But those who are truly wise have a peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits and impartial and sincere. Wisdom is not information. It's a certain type of character. And when I have anger that shows up, it's because I lack wisdom. And so I need to go before the Lord to please, God, give me this change of heart. Give me this character. You need it urgently. I need it desperately. I need this more than all these other projects in my life, all these other things I need to achieve. Cry out for it. Pray for it. Number three, leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for the wrath of God. Number three, leave room for the wrath of God. James chapter 5, verse 7 through 9 says... Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And in this context, James is telling, and he's talking about these rich and corrupt uh, people who are taking advantage of these poor believers. And what these poor believers, what are they probably doing? They can't go to the justice system, especially in that society, so they're crying out to God. And what are they crying out to God? I'm pretty sure they're probably crying out for justice. And if God is a God of compassion towards these people, he will be a God of anger towards those that are hurting them. And in verse 4, it says, He is God Almighty, the God of armies. And when Christ returns, which we're all waiting for, that's another application, He is going to right all wrongs and punish things that have gone unpunished. The judge is at the door. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, talking to Christians. Wait for the Lord's coming. He will take care of this. And I'm glad that Scripture never just says, Hey, just, just let it go, man. It's okay, it's not a big deal. It never, ever sweeps evil under the rug. It doesn't do that. It never says just get over it. 
It says God will deal with it. And it's not like, here's what I'm not, it's not like I'm saying, oh man, I can't wait. That guy's going to get punished, right? I'm so happy that God is going to judge that person. It's more like this submissive trust that says, God, that person really hurt me. But I'm going to leave it up to you. Paul says it this way, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Joseph, in Genesis 50, after his brothers basically sold him into slavery, and he's in this position of power over them, he says, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I the judge? Don't pick up the sword. Don't try to take things into your own hands. Only God can do that in the right way. When I take vengeance, I'm digging two graves. The, the grave of the person I take revenge on and my own grave because I've been eaten away with anger and bitterness and regret. I don't know where I got this, but one pastor says, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to become God. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. Isn't that true? When we try to sit in God's chair, it brings out the worst in us. When you try to take certain prerogatives that belong to God alone, it brings out the worst in us. And that's what Satan did. He was an angel. He tried to sit in God's chair, and he ended up Satan. Leave room for the wrath of God. And number four, soak yourself in the gospel of grace. And this is the last one. James chapter 1, verse 19 through 20 says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this verse, I memorized this when I was in high school because I remember I had an anger problem then. I memorized this. And, you know, when I read it, if you just take this verse out of context, like, hey, don't be angry, just be a good listener. And I don't know how many sermons that I've heard that says, you know, James 1 says, be a good listener. You know, you have two ears and one mouth. And so you should listen twice as much as you talk. <laughs> Gosh, every time I hear that, I cringe. Right? I'm going to be honest. Like, we should just write that out of our illustrations as pastors, right? I have, I'm arguing from my anatomy. I'm like, well, I, I have, you have two ears and one brain. And so I guess I should be listening twice as much as I should be thinking. I have millions of nerve endings. I, should, I guess I should be, you know, feeling as much, way more than listening. I have two fists <laughs> and one mouth. I might as well, like, let's, let's take this into action, right? I'm just like, come on, don't, don't do that, right? This is not a verse that's just saying, be a good listener, right? It's saying, like, what is he saying you should be quick to hear? Verse 18, the verse right before, it says, the word of truth that brought us life. Verse 21, the implanted word which saved your soul. Verse 25, the law that it leads to liberty. The perfect law that leads to liberty. And at the very least, he's saying you need to hear the word. Don't turn off towards a sermon or the Bible because it attacks your sin. Hear it, soak yourself in it, gradually let it do its work. And there's no shortcut through this process. As much as I wish, I wish this sermon could just zap you and you'd be done with anger. There's no shortcut. Do you struggle with anger? 
then let me ask you a question that at first will seem unrelated. When was the last time you took inventory of all the blessings you have in Christ? Do you notice that Ephesians, the book of Ephesians doesn't start with, in your anger, do not sin. No, it starts with, here is every spiritual blessing that you have, one through three. Then it goes in four through six of the application. But you have to have the divine indicatives in mind before you go to the moral imperatives. Do you understand what you have in Christ? Soak yourself in the truths of the gospel. That's the long game. I honestly diagnose, diagnose, diagnose the root of my anger in the desires of my heart. I seek God to give me the wisdom that will shape my character, and I know he will give me that through his word and the gospel of truth, and I let that dwell in me, and I respond with obedience. That's the long game. Let me apply this right away to a situation that might be very sensitive for you. When you're consumed with anger, what's pretty much the last thing on your mind? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's the last thing you're thinking about. And let me apply my own sermon to me. I could yell and say, do this, do that, forgive, blah, 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 you know. And, but what I need to do is I just need to put God's grace before you. And we just need to be deeply humbled that God would love us even in the depths of our own depravity. I can't tell you to forgive. No, you know, that's the problem with like secular, like why forgive if you are not a Christian in my mind? Why? Anger gives you a sense of power. It gives you even a sense of control. Maybe you savor it. Maybe that, that person deserves it. Why? There's a parable in Matthew 18 where Peter's asking about forgiveness. Like, how many times do we have to forgive? How infinite does our, how, how much do we have to forgive where we no longer have to forgive anymore? And Jesus says, well, if there's, if there's a person who repents, there's no limit to how much he has received forgiveness. Come on, Jesus, it's not possible. There has to be some kind of limit. And so Jesus tells this parable, and I'm not going to get deeply into it, but I just want to land the plane with this. One servant owes another servant 100 denarii. That's a huge amount of money. And I am so thankful that Jesus did not put a small amount of money there. Because many of us have been badly sinned against. For someone who's consumed with anger because of a violent crime or they were abused as a child or some other terrible thing, Jesus never ever trivializes the offense and says, you know, this, don't make a big deal out of it. No, they owe you a great debt. But the story goes on. The, the servant that was owed 100 denarii, he owed his own master 10,000 talents. That's an astronomical amount of money. They, they didn't even have, that was the highest number they had during that time. The entire revenue of Israel during that time was 800 talents. And so this servant owed the king an amount of money that is way above what is in circulation for that country. And the king says, pay up. 
I'm sorry, I can't pay that. Please give me more time. Be patient with me. And the master surprisingly, shockingly says, okay, I forgive you. I'll free you of your debt. I will pay that penalty on your behalf. And the point of this story is not that the servant needed to see how small the offense that he needs to forgive. It may not be small at all. And I hope you would never think I would say this lightly. But the point of the story is that we need to grasp that whatever someone has done against you, and that might be a tragic amount of debt, the debt that our Heavenly Father forgives us in Christ is so much greater. You can't conjure up forgiveness. You can't. You can't go to an anger management class and just force yourself to forgive someone. The Bible says that as great of a debt as you are owed, as deep as the wounds that have been inflicted upon you, the wounds inflicted upon Jesus are deeper still. You have, many of you have been through terrible things. And so I don't take that lightly. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, if you are a believer, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, is there anyone that has received greater forgiveness than us? And if that's the case, and I'll close with this verse, Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 will follow, and I hope you see that you have every spiritual blessing. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 through 32. And this is my prayer for you and as for the church. This is something where I need spiritual strength in. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Um, let me give you some time to pray. Pray for wisdom. Mourn over your anger. Maybe you need to pray and leave room for the wrath of God. Or just soak yourself in God's grace. Father, I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to all the riches, the eyes of our heart to the riches of your grace. 
I pray that your spirit would help us see the depth and height and width of your love for us. I pray that your spirit would overcome the strong man that is in our heart and you would overcome and replace him and give us peace. I pray that Christ would reign, that you would be God of our lives and we would experience you in power and love. God, we, we know what people have done against us. But for a moment now, we want to take a moment just to look at what you have done for us. That we, that you, your son, came near to us and you absorbed our wrath and you did not pay us back. You were cursed and yet you did not respond with wrath or anger. You were betrayed. You were, people bore false witness against you. you. You received injustice and torture and yet you were silent and you are a suffering servant. Help us to see what you have been through for us. And I pray that that would melt our hardened hearts. Help us to have that supernatural strength to begin the forgiveness process. I know it may take time, but I pray that for many of us, if we are holding on to anger and grudges, that little by little, we would pay the penalty and we will be able to forgive. God, I pray that you lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. If there's anyone here who has unresolved anger, an unforgiving spirit, we know that is fertile ground for Satan. We pray against him. We pray that you would lead us not to temptation, that he would flee from us as we submit to you. God, I pray that in Christ we would find freedom. So oftentimes we fall back into slavery. God, help us to take hold of the freedom that you have purchased for us. That you paid and spilt your blood. Jesus, I pray that Savior Community Church would be a place where broken people can come and we can honestly lay our desires before you. That we would remember that you are God. You are good, you love us, and you have forgiven us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.